All right, well, you can uh, make your way back to your seat. As you're doing so, let me encourage you, if you have a Bible or a device, to take it with me and open it to the book of Romans, chapter 4. We're going to hit the end part of Romans chapter 4 this week, and then we'll uh, take a little break to uh, focus in on Advent and the celebration of the coming of the Messiah, and then first of the year we'll jump back into Romans chapter 5. I hope you've been enjoying this series in the book of Romans. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Steve had a lengthy uh, sermon illustration from the movie Napoleon Dynamite. And uh, then uh, last weekend, he talked a lot about circumcision, and I'm not really sure which of those two made him the most uncomfortable, truthfully. <laughs> but uh, good stuff that we're focusing on. Uh, today's message may sound uh, a little more like a seminary lecture than a sermon, but uh, uh, hopefully you'll do your best to stay with me. I'll try to move fast. We're going to look at a number of other passages beyond just what Paul has to say here in Romans 4, but hopefully this will just strengthen our understanding as we move through this rich, meaty book of Romans. You know, back when I was a student pastor, we used to sing this really kind of silly song called Father Abraham. And Father Abraham would go, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That's right. And then, and then uh, too bad we didn't fit that into the worship package, right? And then we could have, uh, then you'd swing one arm and then the other, and then, you know, both feet and nodding your head and turning around. It really was a pretty stupid song. But it was fun, that's right. But had you known Abraham, even as an old man, 75, 85, 95 years old, you would have thought what a really ridiculous song it was because Father Abraham, I mean, he didn't have any sons, he didn't have any descendants. But in our passage today, we're going to deal with how God intervened into that situation and truly made him Father Abraham. So hopefully you're there. You may uh, take out your message notes as well. That has the whole passage there of Romans 4, 13 to 25, and just a couple of the other passages that we're going to look at. But Paul starts in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, and says this. He says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, then faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul here is talking about our salvation, about what it is that makes us right with a holy God. And again, just like he has made over and over this point throughout the book of Romans, he wants us to understand that our salvation is not based on the law, on works, on our best efforts. It's faith. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Through what? Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. 
It's a gift of God, and it's not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, if salvation could be achieved by our efforts, then there was no need for Jesus to die on the cross, was there? In fact, Paul says that specifically in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, where he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You see, Old Testament believers, just like Abraham, they were saved the same way as believers this side of the cross. Not by the keeping of the Old Testament rules and feasts and rituals, what Paul is kind of shorthandedly calling the law here, But they were saved by looking forward to the coming of a Messiah who would die to be their ultimate sin offering. In the same way that we today, this side of the cross, look back to the Messiah who came and died in our place on the cross as our ultimate sin offering. And the purpose of the law was to show how incapable we or anyone else is of keeping it fully. It was like an x-ray. I don't know if you've ever broken something or been afraid you've broken something, and so they take you to the medical facility and they x-ray your arm or your leg or whatever it is, and the doctor comes out with the x-ray and he says, yeah, see right here, it shows you have a broken arm right here. Okay, you'll be fine. Go on now, right? No. The x-ray doesn't do anything to solve your problem, does does it? It just reveals that you do have a problem, and that's what the law did. It showed that we couldn't keep it fully. So instead, in in verse 13, Paul says that this salvation that we have is righteousness that comes by faith, not by the law, not by what we do, not by keeping anything. It's through belief. It's through trust, not my efforts. Now, there is a difference in understanding between the old and the new covenants, the old and the new testament, this, and that it's this aspect between law and grace. Jeremiah The prophet Jeremiah was prophesying, and in Jeremiah chapter 31, he says this, starting in verse 31, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new agreement, a new testament with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God's people were asked to approach a holy God by offerings that they would make on the Day of Atonement and by keeping all of these Old Testament ceremonial laws and feasts and offerings. That's why so much of the Old Testament has to do with these things. 
But in the New Testament, you see, Jesus changes this by becoming the sacrifice. We don't need to come and bring our sacrifice. Jesus was our sacrifice, our ultimate sin offering. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 7. He says, unlike the other high priest, he, talking about Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. No, instead, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus became the sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice now. Jesus was our sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. In fact, Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, Jesus eliminates the law as the means of being able to approach a holy God. He doesn't eliminate the moral law. There's still aspects of our obedience to him. But he eliminates the law as the means by which we would approach a holy God. No longer do we need to offer a lamb as the covering for our sin because Jesus, the Lamb of God was offered up on the altar of the cross. And that's why the, the veil was torn, right? God was making a statement. You don't need to make those offerings anymore. The ultimate once-for-all offering has been made. That's why we no longer need to approach God through a priest, isn't it? But you see, the law never saved anyone. Salvation is only available through faith, Old or New Testament. And so Paul says, as he goes on in Romans 4, verse 16, Therefore, the promise comes by what? By faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Paul is saying here that it's not just believing Jews, but rather all who like Abraham, who will just believe. That it's not just Jews who because of their faith practice the Old Testament law, but even believing Gentiles, non-Jews, who would also believe, who would put their faith and trust in this God. Now, it's important that you understand that this was God's plan all along. And to show that to you, let me take you back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 it's there in your notes as well if you want to see that whole passage. We'll show it up on the screens as well. But in Acts chapter 2, you remember, it's the day of Pentecost. Jesus has died on the cross. He's, 
He's been resurrected. He's ascended to heaven. He's promised his followers that he would send the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And people wonder, what's going on? And so Peter, in the midst of that, stands up to explain what's going on. And so in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. He says, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He says, no, this, this confusion, this falling of the Holy Spirit, he says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then what he does in verses 17 to 21 is he quotes what the prophet Joel 800 years before, in 800 B.C., had prophesied. You can read right about it. If you look in your Old Testament, in the book of Joel, you'll read these exact words. Joel had prophesied this 800 years before. And so, Peter, quoting Joel, says this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, and blood, and fire, and billows of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And verse 21, don't miss this. This is the main point he's making. He says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just Jews, but even even non-Jews, Gentiles, who believe, who by faith will trust now, so often we, we read these passage, this passage like this and we get caught up in the weeds of, of, of different stuff that happens here. One of the things that throws us off is in verse 17, he starts out by saying, in the last days. And we read that and we think, oh, that must be talking about stuff that's future to us yet. But Peter says, no, Joel said that 800 years ago about what was happening right then, first century. And so I think maybe a better understanding is he's talking about the last days of the old covenant. Remember, Jeremiah said there's going to be a new covenant, a new agreement, a new testament, a new way, because Jesus would be the sacrifice. And then second thing that throws us here is there's all of this apocalyptic language in here that kind of gets us, our mind kind of fogs over and we start thinking about Tim LaHaye prophetic books and charts and all of that stuff. But I think, again, I think it's just apocalyptic language like we see throughout the Old Testament, all sorts of places that talks about what's happening in the heavenly realms. We don't see it, but it's going on at the same time that other things that's going down here that's seeable to us. That's, I think he's just using the same kind of apocalyptic language to talk about that as well. But the main thing, the really big deal that he's getting at 
is what he prophesied 800 years before Jesus even came. That at that point, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not only Jews will be the people of God, but that God's plan was to throw open the doors of heaven to everyone who will call out on the name of the Lord. It's what John talked about in John chapter 1, where John says he, talking about Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. In fact, verse 11 says he came to that which was his own, his own people, Abraham's physical descendants. And yet his own did not receive him. And so verse 12 Yet to all who did receive him, to those who would just believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just Abraham's physical descendants, but anyone who by faith would just believe. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John was stating in his gospel that Jesus would upset the preconceived notion that Yahweh was just the God of the Jews. That salvation was only available to the physical bloodline of Abraham. In fact, Paul adds to this understanding in the book of Galatians chapter 3. Where Paul says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up. Until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And so the law was our guardian until Christ came. That he might be just, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And so, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That anyone who by faith can come and receive this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That if you belong to Christ, Paul says, then you're Abraham's seed. And your heirs according to the promise. I mean, do you hear the mind-blowing thing that Paul is saying to these first century people? That Abraham's seed would no longer be just believing Jews. But it would be open to believing Gentiles as well. And so back to Romans 4. Paul goes on, verse 17. And so he says, as it is written... I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. He says to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Not not just the father of Israel, but many nations. Now, notice 
what kind of God Abraham was asked to put his faith and trust in. He says he's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. I mean, that's some kind of God, isn't it? And so... Abraham trusts. Abraham believes. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Let me ask you, when did God give life to that which was dead, and call into being something that wasn't before. Well, in this passage, he did it to a 100-year-old Abraham and his 90-year-old barren wife when he gave them a son. I mean, Sarah's womb was dead, right? D-E-A-D, dead. And no amount of chemical stimulation would allow Abraham and Sarah to have a child. And yet God did it. This God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, let me ask you, did this come about because Abraham just had such incredible faith? Of course not. It came about... Because of the object of that faith. A God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. You want to know when else God did this? Well, Paul tells us. Verse 22, he says, This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who, here it is, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. God did this when Jesus died on the cross for our sin And he was D-E-A-D, dead. In fact, I think one of the reasons why the Bible emphasizes so much the tremendous suffering that Jesus endured on the cross is so we wouldn't be confused. He was dead. That when the soldiers came by to break the legs of everyone that was on the cross so that they could hurry up their dying They stopped at Jesus and said, we don't need to break his legs. He's already dead. So they thrust a sword in his side and through his heart. He was dead. The Bible wants us to make no mistake about it. Jesus was dead. And then, 
this God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not called Jesus back to life. And that's why we sing, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silence the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory for you are raised to life again. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. And the reason why you can trust the security of your salvation to this God is because Jesus overcame Death on the cross. Andy Stanley says, I've heard him say it many times, that if you find a guy who says he's going to die and come back to life, and then he does it, just follow that guy. Right? There's been some charlatans who faked it, but only one guy who's really done it. And Abraham put his faith in this guy. This God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And because of that, verse 22 says that God credited his sinful account as righteous. There's been an error at the bank in your favor. Remember that Monopoly card? And God takes our bankrupt account and in its place gives us Jesus's righteousness now abraham couldn't see clearly to be able to understand all the specifics of how atonement and sacrifice and jesus how it was going to all happen specifically he just put his faith and trust in this god to save him and the bible tells us that he did well end of seminary lesson but because i'm a pastor Let me make a few applications, okay? The first one is this. I want to ask you, like we have many times throughout this series, just this important question. And it's this. Have you come to Jesus as the only means of salvation and called out to him alone to save you? Not on the basis of your works, not on the basis of your efforts, not on the basis of your best attempts to clean up your life, that you've come to realize that salvation rests not in the power of our faith, but in the object of our faith. And you said, Jesus, would you, because of what you did on the cross, exchange my bankrupt account for your righteousness? Have you done that? If you haven't, or you're not sure that you have, don't leave here without making sure you've talked to someone to say, I want to know for sure. Whether that's one of our prayer team members in a little while, they would love to walk you through and help you pray and make sure that you know that you know. Or someone that you've come with. Or someone that you know. But you need to know. That you've come to Jesus as the only means. Of your salvation. Of being right with a holy God. 
Well, application number two is I just wonder if maybe for some of us today, there's something in our life that is dead, that you long to see brought back to life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. Maybe it's your womb that despite the desire of your heart, you still have empty arms when you long to have a baby. Maybe it's some hope, some desire, some dream that you've been holding on to. Now hear me. We can't presuppose to know what God's will and plans are. I don't care what any screaming TV preacher says. It's presumption to claim as God's promise to you what you do not know for sure His plan is. But you can ask. You can put your hope in God, this God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which wasn't there before. And we can come throw ourselves bare before God and ask, just like Jesus did. Remember Jesus on the night before the cross? He prayed and he said, God, if there's, if there's another way, But if there isn't, God, I want what you want. I want your plan. If, if this is what will bring you the most glory, then I want to submit to what you want. Oh, but if there's another way. We can come like Jesus and we can say, God, I know it's within your power. And I don't presuppose for a minute that I can tell you or order you what to do. But God, if it were within your will and your way, would you do this? And so I'd like to just pray for us now. And I'm not done, so don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but let me just take a minute and pray for us. Can I do that? Would you bow your eyes, or bow your head, close your eyes? And I want to encourage you. No one's looking around. I'm not looking, but... I, if your heart's been resonating with what I've been talking about here and there's something in your life that you know is dead and you want to, you long so much to see it resurrected, to see it brought to life, then I would encourage you to just maybe cup your hands out in front of you and just picture whatever it is, place it in your hands and just hold that up to God. And then I want to pray for us. I don't have any magic powers. It's not that. But I want to call out to God on behalf of us. God, you see what we're holding. You know. And Lord, we surrender. We submit to you, God. We want, we want your will. We want the thing that's going to bring you the most glory. Lord, we want that. But God, if it would be, Lord, this hope this dream, this desire. We know here a God who calls the dead to life. 
You're a God who calls into being things that were not before. And so, God, we humbly ask, would you do this? For your glory, would you do this? And we pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, one more thing. And I know you're, you're not supposed to make new points in your conclusion. That's what they taught us in preacher school. But I'm going to do it anyway because I, I, I just couldn't resist on this, this aspect. In verse 20 and 21, Paul says, Yet he, talking about Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And a few weeks as I was studying through this and thinking through this, I read those verses and I thought, what do you mean he didn't waver in unbelief? I mean, do you know the story of Abraham? I mean, two times. He moves and he's afraid, and so he claims his beautiful wife Sarah is just his sister, and God has to divinely rescue her out of somebody's harem. I mean, that sounds like a little wavering to me, doesn't it to you? Or remember God had told Abraham that he and Sarah were going to have a son, and so a lot of years go by, and after a while they do what we tend to do, and they think, well, we need to help God out here. And so they thought, well, what if we took Abraham's maid and, and what if Abraham had sex with her and sh she had a son and Sarah, you could be right there and maybe that's how we could help God pull this off. Sounds like a little, un a little <laughs> wavering to me. And so I think here the point isn't that Abraham's faith and trust in God were perfect. I think it's that he never lost sight of God's power to do it. In fact, at the end of verse 20, did you notice it says, and he was strengthened in his faith. His, he, he grew his faith. God helped him trust more, grow more in trust and faith. And I'm willing to bet there's some of us today who could use some stronger faith. I don't mean the faith to save us, but the faith to trust God, to step out in obedience, independence, and to say, God, ah, help me trust you to do this. We need to maybe strengthen our faith muscle. You know, you strengthen a muscle, don't you? You exercise it, right? You go into the weight room and you do resistance training to help build that muscle up. And maybe there's some of us who what we need to hear in this message today is, God, I want that. Strengthen, grow my faith to trust you more, to depend upon you more. Remember the the boy who encountered Jesus, uh, the boy and his father who encountered Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Remember the father says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. 
And Jesus says, if you can, right, everything is possible for one who believes. And it says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And maybe for some of us, our prayer today needs to be, Lord, help me overcome when I don't believe. Help me believe more. Grow my faith. Well, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I would just ask one more time that you meet us here right now. In this room. And Lord, there's some of us who what we need is saving faith. Lord, we need to call out to Jesus, to you alone. We receive what you did for us on the cross and on the basis of that alone. Lord, we ask that you would exchange our unrighteousness, our bankruptcy in exchange for your righteousness on our account. God, help them to do that just now. Right now, meet them in this moment. Fathers, for others of us, we need to grow our faith. That you have things for us to do. In fact, there's some of us that right now in our minds, things come to our mind that we feel like you have at times called us out into, challenged us out into. And we've just been too scared to do it. We've not been brave enough to do it. It's been more comfortable in the boat. And so, Lord, I would ask for us that we would just be able to say, Jesus, grow our faith. Help us to take the next step and the next step and the next step. God, grow our faith. Help us overcome our lack of dependence, our lack of trust. And Lord, there's some of us who we just need to bring our hurt and our hopes and our disappointments and our sadness and our grief. And we need to bring it to you, not with presumption, but with faith. We bring it to you, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And so, Lord, meet us right here, right where we are right now. And give us the wisdom to hear from you specifically what you want to say to us today. And then give us the courage to respond. And I pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen.